This third session is how do we read Joshua personally and devotionally? Uh, at points, this will get really practical on how to read the Bible, uh, how to read the Bible and apply it to our lives. I'll give you some tools to do that, not just in Joshua, but in reading really the whole Bible. Uh, I'll remind you of the goals of Bible reading for the Christian. And we'll talk about some common missteps about uh, in, in applying the Bible and specifically in Joshua. And then we'll work on some test cases in the book of, of Joshua, some practice passages, you could say. But I want to start with a chart, a diagram. You've got a, a bare bones chart in your uh, notes there uh, under 3.1. Really, I want to start here by trying to connect what Ron and Trent's lessons were doing with what I want to try to do here in our third session. Think of it this way, we're not giving you three different ways to study the Bible. So Ron is looking at it as literature, and Trent is looking at it as biblical theology, and, and I'm trying to show you how to read the Bible for the heart, and take your pick, whatever one uh, you, you would prefer, or whatever one gets you the most interested. Uh, we're not trying to do that, but we're really laying out a progression for you, a progression of Bible study, interpretation, and application. You can call it getting all the way around the block. Uh, that's what I call it. It comes from David Helm. Um, he teaches Simeon workshops for pastors, and he's come up with this helpful chart that I'll lead you in filling out uh, in your notes here. Let's start with this, the biblical text. Just draw a little circle there at the bottom of the corner of that square, and, and that's where we're starting, right? We're starting with the biblical text, of course. We want to get it to us today, now. Uh, we want to apply it to our lives. We want it to be relevant for our, our living, of course, right? How do we do it? How do we get from the biblical text, which is an ancient text, cultures removed, millennia removed, to us today, now? Well, we don't go in that way. We go around the block. So let's start building this around the block then. We got to get back to them back then. We have to understand them and then in their own context, in its own context, right? We're used to looking at the biblical text first and foremost as 21st century Americans. That's how we look at everything, right? Uh, we can't help but just be the creatures that we are and, and influenced by the culture that we're influenced by. Uh, like a, a fish doesn't even know what water is because he's in it all the time. So we don't know what, what kind of glasses we look at things through. And too often we, we don't go to them and then. We just read the Bible as this floating eternal book of wisdom that, uh, that we think we can immediately make sense of. This is the, the work of interpretation, under interpretation would be things like genre. You might have heard of the word exegesis, to draw out, instead of eisegesis, which means to put into the text. We want to draw out of the passage what it says and what it intends to communicate. We don't stop there. Top right corner, we're to go to Jesus and the New Testament. That's what Pastor Trent was just leading us in, how to move from them back then, in this case Joshua, to Jesus in the New Testament. You can call this the work of biblical theology. 
or history of redemption or redemptive history. Biblical theology isn't just theology that's biblical, like it's true. It's doing theology according to the Bible. The Bible's laid out in a history, a timeline, basically. Uh, even if the books aren't in that order, we, we can figure out the history and do theology according to that history. Then, moving from Jesus in the New Testament, we do this thing we're talking about in this session, application. That's how it gets to us now in a proper way, application. Now look at this. If we move from the biblical text and stopped with understanding them and then, we would have an intellectual but irrelevant understanding of the Bible. You see that? We would understand ancient people. We'd understand ancient covenants. We would understand Bible verses. Uh, but we may not be doing anything more than the way a secular historian studies ancient manuscripts and ancient people. We don't want to do that. Neither do we want to do this, where we move from them and then and stop at Jesus and the New Testament. This would be encouraging, but not transformative. We'd get the gospel, we'd see Jesus, we'd get the New Testament reality and the promises that are there, but the Bible doesn't want us to just stop there, right? So neither of those are good ideas. We're supposed to get all the way around the block. Neither do we want to take this shortcut we don't want to move from biblical text to trying to find Jesus in New Testament hints and foreshadows without first understanding them then. When you do this, it's what we might call spiritualizing or allegorizing. Here's where you can uh, pull a rabbit out of the hat that's in every page of the Old Testament. That's not a good idea. Neither is it a good idea to take this shortcut, to move from them back then directly to us now. This is moralizing. You see, you cut out Jesus and you, you, you cut out well, our gospel. You've cut out hope. You've cut out really everything. If you're only looking at them and then, and particularly as examples, either bad examples or good examples, you're moralizing the text and uh, you're skipping Jesus and you might as well not read the Bible as a Christian. So here's what we want instead. We want to go around the text robustly. We want to go from the biblical text that we read in our Bibles today to understand them and then as much as we can. Now, that takes work, and, you know, we can all do that in varying degrees. So understanding uh, uh, ancient times culturally, boy, books can help with this. The text itself helps with this. Us not assuming our own culture as we read it helps with this. So, yes, we're all growing in understanding them and then, just like we're all growing in understanding Jesus in the New Testament and his relationship to the Old Testament, and just as we're all also growing in our application of these things to us now. Don't take shortcuts. Okay, secondly, 
In your notes, we want to talk now about principles for proper application of Scripture. And I'm just going to offer two, at least up front. More could be mentioned and more principles of proper application will be alluded to throughout this lesson. But up front, I want to establish two principles for a proper application of Scripture. One is that right application must build upon right interpretation. And secondly, something can be biblically true, but not in a given passage. Something can be found elsewhere in Scripture, but not in the one passage you're reading. Let's say a section of Joshua. Tuck those two principles away, and we'll come back to them some more. Thirdly, let's talk about some common missteps in Bible reading. Some of these are more or less applicable to uh, studying Joshua, but, uh, but it'll apply to Joshua and, and really to the whole Bible. For some, there's the telephone book approach. This is, you know, flip through the Bible, let your fingers do the walking, point your, your finger down on, on, a, on a column or a paragraph or a chapter, and you read there. The biggest problem with this is a lack of connectivity, right? The Bible isn't just this collection of sayings. Uh, it's not proverbial in that sense. It's not a bunch of vignettes in that sense. And so this is a, not a good approach to daily Bible reading. Neither is the eight ball approach. Have you ever read the Bible like this? You've got a dilemma you're trying to solve. Should I take the job or not take the job? Should we move to Ohio or not move to Ohio? And you're reading the Bible for an answer. Your morning Bible reading is just sort of like um, thoughtless until there's something that might speak to that. Or maybe it's not decision-making, but problem-solving. You have conflict with someone. You're trying to figure out whether you're in sin or they're in sin. And you read with that in mind. And no doubt we should bring our burdens to the Lord. No doubt we should read the Bible for answers. But here's where we're coming with an agenda that may keep us from a right interpretation and may steer us away from a proper application of what God wants to say to us in any given day. Eight-ball approach. There's the apple-a-day approach. This is just reading the Bible and as long as you do it, that's all that matters. Like eating an apple a day keeps the doctor away. So as long as you do it, as long as you checked it off the list, then you're good. Who cares whether you understood it? Who cares whether you applied it? You did it. Move on and feel good about it. Not a good approach. Are these familiar? They are to me. They are to me. I think we're all growing in shedding these, right? but at times we're more or less doing some of these. There's the hobby horse approach, and your hobby horse can be a theological one. You might have a theological dilemma you're wrestling with right now, and so every time you pick up the Bible, you're looking for verses that go in this column or that column. Is God sovereign or am I free? And so you're consumed with it, and you go looking to see which one will get more weight today as you read through these chapters in your Bible. Or it can be a, a, not a theological hobby horse, but a moral one. Uh, you could be sort of, um, you know, really aggravated by lying and gossip. And so you see it everywhere. And 
and you, you underline those verses. Or maybe it's a societal hobby horse. Every time you see a group of people being bad, you feel better about yourself and you remind yourself of how bad our culture is today. And it just keeps going further and further down the toilet. Uh, that's a hobby horse. Be careful. You should know where your hobby horses are and be suspicious that you're going looking for them. Um, so don't pretend you don't have them. Know what they are. Know where you tend to lean and be suspicious that you might be overdoing it. The trivial pursuit approach is just, well, it's not spiritual, really. It's uh, just looking for tidbits. Oh, I, I didn't know that they actually gave the name of that wife. There it is. Now I know. Or uh, I now have memorized the 12 tribes. I can give them to you. Uh, that sort of thing. Um, the trivial pursuit approach is not, is not what we're after here. These are all sort of tongue-in-cheek ways of putting missteps. Here's a very fancy one with Latin. The Lectio Divina approach. The Lectio Divina approach is reading until something speaks to me. This is really common among today's evangelicals. That's probably how I started reading the Bible. You just read until something goes, ooh, light bulb, right? And you underline it or you write it down. It becomes one of your favorites, maybe. Well, this actually has a Roman Catholic tradition. It's a Benedictine Catholic tradition. Um, again, it's very common among evangelicals today. And there's something good about the fact that we want it to be communion with God. We want God to speak afresh. We'll come to some of those things in just a little bit, and, and we'll talk about how it's good to have God's Word speak to us afresh, and how it's good uh, to use the Bible in communion with God. But this is a way that's sort of ignoring grammar, ignoring the things that Ron and Trent have already uh, taught us so well this morning. There's the Where's Waldo approach which is really a where's Jesus approach. This is what Trent was talking about a little bit, where there's a game almost to try to find Jesus on every page. Here's the rabbit on, uh, coming out of the hat of every page. And really, if you think about it, all these so far are a kind of where's Waldo approach. But where's Waldo? You know, the, bo the book, the kid's book, where you know, there are a million things on a page and there's one guy in a striped shirt hidden somewhere and you've got to find him. With all of these, there's some sort of agenda that's driving you to go look for that Waldo. Uh, it just happens to be with this last one that really there's a Jesus that you're looking for, and that's your Waldo. There's the homebody approach, where you stick with the safe, the familiar, the favorite parts. Uh, if you're a logical kind of thinker, you might stay with Paul's epistles, good Aristotelian logic in Paul's epistles. It tends to follow outlines and, and have some flow to the, to the thinking. And, and so if you like that, then you're going to stay there in something like Joshua where there's a bunch of killing going on or uh, some long parts about divvying up the land. You just go, I don't know. You stay away from it. Don't do that. There's the proverbial approach. This is similar to the Lectio Divina, where you're on the hunt for good sayings or new favorite verses. There's the word study approach, where you're studying the Bible looking for rich, maybe related words in a given section of Scripture. Now, on Sunday, uh, tomorrow, I'm preaching 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and I have six Ps. 
it might look to you tomorrow that I'm doing this very thing. I found six related words in two chapters, and I'm going to tell you about them. Um, yeah, that's sort of a, a, an outline that a preacher gives is a final product after a whole lot of work, right? So it's not the same thing as, oh, look, I found six Ps. Uh, it's a whole lot more work in the last stages sometimes. Okay, how do I communicate the structure of this passage um, in a way that isn't a um, indented outline, but our people can get in a Sunday morning. They can walk away with six Ps, and, and those six Ps are faithful to the text. Again, that's different than a word study approach, which simply finds some interesting words, puts them together, and says, here's what I saw today. And then lastly, there's the about the Bible approach. And here's where you're reading good material on God or the Bible or theology uh, or the Christian life, but you don't read the Bible. And in our day today with blogs and tweets, this might be where you're getting most of your Bible-ish kind of content or your religious content. And, and you might feel like, I'm getting enough because I get a Bible a day or I get um, so-and-so's blog post every day or I follow Paul Tripp's Twitter account, which always has great gospel thoughts and quotes. And those are all good things. Don't stop doing, doing those. But it's not the same thing as Bible reading like we Christians are called to do. Let's remind ourselves of some goals for Bible reading, just in general. Hopefully this is just a reminder to you. But yet, lately I've been encountering people who um, don't assume these things I'm about to list in their Bible reading. Some of the things we just talked about, like the, the trivial pursuit approach to the Bible, doesn't assume these sorts of things as the goal or goals for Bible reading. Goals like this. We read the Bible to know God, right? Intimately and personally, but also theologically and thoughtfully. To commune with God. To hear Him speak afresh. To praise Him. To stand in awe of His grand plan or to see His ways. We read the Bible to find true spiritual comfort. We read the Bible, as George Mueller put it, to get our souls happy in God. Listen to what George Mueller said about this. This is in John Piper's book, Desiring God. He quotes Mueller who said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day, in other words, first thing I should do in the morning, was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, how I might, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. He went on to say, after having asked in a few words the Lord's blessing upon his word, I began to meditate on the word of God, searching as it were into every verse to get blessing out of it, not for the sake of the public ministry of the word, not to prepare a sermon, not for the sake of, but, but for the sake of meditating upon it, for the sake of obtaining food for my soul. The result I have found to be almost invariably is this, 
that after a very few minutes, my soul has been led to confession or to thanksgiving or to intercession or to supplication so that though I did not, as it were, give myself to prayer but to meditation, yet it turned almost immediately more or less into prayer. Again, one of the goals of reading the Bible is to get our souls happy in the Lord. Another one is to renew our minds or to reform our thinking, our worldview. The the world around us is pouring in data and influence, and we need Bible to counter that, right? Uh, to, To think God's thoughts and not the thoughts of the world around us. To grow in godliness, to keep from sin, to shape our aims and affections, or simply to help us walk with him throughout the day. We'll talk about some ways of doing that in just a minute. But again, just contrast these with some of those missteps we talked about, like the eight ball approach or the apple a day approach or the hobby horse approach or, or the word study approach. All of those miss the fact that Bible reading should be worshipful and communal and it should end not just in new thoughts but in new affections or new convic- convictions. The fifth thing in this third section, tools for application in Bible reading. Very related to this George Mueller quote I just gave you is prayer. So there should be prayer before our Bible reading, during our Bible reading, and after our Bible reading. We should pray for understanding. We should pray for a hunger for God's word. You don't feel like reading God's word? Yeah, you're not in the new heaven and the new earth yet, man. It's a pilgrimage. And so pray for his help. Pray for a a renewed hunger for his word. Pray for a right response to his word. Pray about what you're seeing when you're seeing things in his word. And talk to God about your response, uh, having read his word. Talk to him about your confession. Praise to him. Again, pray for help that he would help you live and do his word, not just know it and believe it. Dialogue is another tool for application in Bible reading. Dialogue. You talk to yourself and to the text. Uh, Ron gave us that quote. I think it's on the front page of uh, his lesson. Um, We're to query the text is the language Piper used in the quote that was given there. Query the text, investigate the text, ask questions of the text. Related to that is playing preacher. Playing preacher is not just asking questions of the text or dialoguing with the text, but applying the text. Pretend you can hear your favorite preacher in your head as you're reading God's word. What would he say after that sentence? Uh, Once you've understood a paragraph, what would he say then to, to drive it home? Preach to yourself. Know your sins. Your sins. Your Favorite sins, your pet sins, your struggles. Boy, those are great ways for you to bring a passage to the reality of your heart and life. No, read the Bible with your sins in mind. Journaling, this is one I've never done, but I hear it works and I hear it's good. Someone reminded me of it this week. Yeah, you should put journaling on that list. I'm like, yeah, you're right, I forgot about that. Quick story, I have a journal in my house that's a very fancy leather journal I paid like 60 bucks for because like your gym membership, uh, if you get the fancy one, you'll use it, right? 
And so I got the fancy leather journal, and I was going to use it as my um, everyday thing. You know, I was going to put down what I did and, and prayers and, and Bible study and notes and all that. And, and so somewhere in my house is still this very fancy journal that just says, had lunch with Wayne Latham. That's all it says. So if journaling works for you, good, use it. Take it with you. After you read a chunk of God's word, especially when you're doing Old Testament narrative and you should read more if you can, if you have the time, read two, three chapters or 10. But then you've got all this information in your head that's slowly seeping out. So what do you do? Take it with you. Find something that struck you and write it out on a maybe three by five card or you put it in your phone, you email it to yourself and And by the way, it might look different. What you would look for, if you're going to take it with you, what you look for might be different in Old Testament stories than what you would look for when you're reading, say, a New Testament letter. A New Testament letter is going to have this really pithy thing, and that's great. And and, uh, it'll be directly meaningful and powerful, maybe convicting or encouraging. With an Old Testament story, you might want to write down something that's just bizarre, it's just interesting. Um, maybe we'll see some of those in, in just a bit when we work through Joshua. Tell someone later. Uh, Nathan Sherman, our youth minister, suggested this as a, a good habit. He knew of uh, some friends who um, would simply say later in the day, hey, can I tell you what I read this morning in my devotions, my Bible study? And uh, as they talked about it, they were, of course, reminding themselves of it and clarifying things even as they talked it out with others. Read with others, especially family, and discuss. It's a great way to apply the Bible is ask others around you what they thought or what what God convicted them of, uh, how, how they would apply it. Meditation and or memorization. In other words, whether it's meditation or memorization, slow down, gaze, stare, and ask questions. That's the next section, section six, questions to ask toward application. And I'll just ask these really quickly. Uh, To quote Nathan again, Nathan, our youth minister, tells our students, here's two questions to ask when you finish reading your Bible. What did this teach me about God and what does this teach me about myself? That's a great simple way of uh, approaching this. I'm gonna give you more than just that, those two questions. Not to overwhelm you, but, but there are other questions we could ask. Like, what does this passage teach me about God, his character, his ways, his, his person? What does this passage teach me about his plan? What does this passage teach me about myself? And related to that, how does it show me my sin, my need? What does this passage confront in my life? Of course, thank God we don't stop there not just seeing our sin, but how does this passage show me Christ, the cross, and my salvation? How else does the passage offer hope and comfort and joy? What does this passage want me to do, change, and or believe? And then here's a different kind of question. Would the biblical author now recognize my application of this passage? Remember those first two principles I gave you? That every application should be built on a right interpretation 
And just because something is biblically true doesn't mean it's in the passage you're studying right now. Well, here, ask yourself this. You've read a chapter or two or three of Joshua. You start to make deductions about what it says. You start to make applications for your own life. Imagine Joshua now in heaven. Not Joshua who wrote the Bible, because as he wrote Joshua, more came after that. And let's presume that Joshua now in heaven knows at least as much about the Bible as you do. So imagine little Joshua. I don't know why I said little, but let's just imagine he's little. It's better that way. Imagine little Joshua's on your shoulder, and you say, I think this passage speaks to politics. Would he go, no, it doesn't. Or would he go, yes, that's it. That is the right application here. So keep that in mind. We'll, again, have some test cases in Joshua in just a bit here uh, that might help us explore that some more. The seventh one. Now we get into some Old Testament narrative uh, specific things, like what's unique to applying Old Testament narrative. And again, here I can go quickly because Ron and Trent did a great job and, and there's a lot of overlap here. What's unique about applying Old Testament narrative? One, it's harder to apply than some other genres or kinds of literature like New Testament epistles. New Testament epistles say, here is what we have in Christ and here's how we should live in light of it. And it's just very clear. Sometimes the language is confusing. Sometimes the words are big. Sometimes we have to stare at it a little bit longer to get the flow of thought. But, but it's, it's easier to understand than, than this kind of literature that oftentimes communicates to us with, a, I've said this before, with a wink and a smile, right? It sort of, um, it teaches us the next point illustratively, not directly. Ron talked about this, about reading between the lines, right? You have to see what the passage is doing, not just what it's saying. Why did the, why did the speech start here? Why is it so long? Why is there poetry in the midst of a story? What, that's unusual. Does that mean something? Those kind of questions. It's also unique that God is sometimes the hidden character in the story. How often do we have a story in the Old Testament where there's almost no mention of God, but you know he's the one orchestrating things in the background, right? Um, you see that in 1 Samuel all the time. Uh, you see it in the book of Ruth, uh, maybe as, as good as any. He's sometimes the hidden character of the story. And Old Testament stories also emphasize God's unfolding plan. So this is what Trent was talking about with horizons and context and, and this plan of moving from promise to fulfillment. Old Testament narrative points ahead to the coming of Christ, but not always the same way. Again, Trent talked about different ways in which uh, the Old Testament points ahead to Christ. The characters in the story are almost always, well, no, they are always mixed bags. Even guys like Joshua who are types, a kind of Christ, a kind of Messiah figure that foreshadow the true and coming capital M Messiah, even guys like that, they're imperfect. King David, imperfect. Bad guys in the story are sometimes good. You can't say, Saul is bad, don't be like Saul. Well, sometimes Saul's 
pretty good. The stories are often an expose of sin, and hence they offer a powerful warning to us about sin and its, um, its trajectory, its downward trajectory. You can read 1 Corinthians 10 on your own later. That's what Paul talks about there in the middle of 1 Corinthians 10. He says, the things that happened in the wilderness were written down for us, for our instruction, so that we wouldn't do what they did. We wouldn't become idolaters, and we wouldn't become adulterers, and, and we wouldn't grumble like they did. So if anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Old Testament stories also emphasize the waiting on fulfillment that's to come. It's slow going sometimes, isn't it? It seems like the story or the plan of God is promises that have been given already. It seems like they at times move forward and then back. Whoa, what happened? Well, it's not yet. It's moving ahead slowly. They're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. And God is always the hero of all the stories. Never forget that he's really the main character in all of this. So now let's talk about some missteps in applying Old Testament narrative. This will have some overlap with what I've already talked about with missteps of reading the Bible, but these will be common to applying Old Testament narrative. One way we misapply the Old Testament stories is when we misappropriate. That is, we put ourselves in the wrong sandals of the story. When we were studying 1 Samuel together in recent months before the summer, I kept saying, we want to put ourselves in the sandals of King David. King David's good here. Be good. King David isn't exactly good here, so don't do what he did here. Um, we should instead ask ourselves, what's it like living under this king? What's it like being one of those people who pick up the newspaper in those days and you live under King Saul or you live under King David? Well, same thing with Joshua. You read Joshua and you're really tempted to put yourself, because we always think we're the star of our own story, we put ourselves in the shoes of Joshua. Oh, here's Joshua. Um, here's Joshua being good. Yeah, I'm going to be like Joshua. We should all be a Joshua. But instead, we should maybe more often think of ourselves not as the star of the story, but what's it like under this guy and what's God doing through this guy and how, how we need a, a savior, a warrior. Generalizing, we can appropriate very specific promises for ourselves in a wrong way. So when Josh was given very specific promises, march around seven times and the walls will come down. Uh, you shouldn't use that for home demolition. Let's just say, okay? That's a very specific promise at a very specific time. But we often do it. We often say, oh, look, there's a promise. Oh, look, there's a warning. And we've pulled it from its historical context. Uh, we've universalized it. By that, I mean we've assumed that what God commanded them or then, he does me now. Maybe, maybe not. You, you got to ask yourself more careful questions about the, about the context. Remember, there are different covenantal 
contexts, different eras of redemptive history, and God did not save differently, but he did work differently. And there were unique promises and unique warnings and that sort of thing. Then there's decontextualizing, treating a story as just a vignette, not part of a whole book or story. There's moralizing, where we draw simple moral lessons when a bigger point is being made. That's not to say that the Old Testament doesn't give us moral lessons. It does. It shows us how to live in some ways, in really colorful ways. But that's oftentimes not its primary point. It's oftentimes doing something far more than just showing you what to imitate or what not to imitate. Dare I say it, I'll put it this way, rarely is the primary point of an Old Testament story merely New Testament imitation. Eclipsing. By this I mean where a possible implication of a passage eclipses a primary aim of the passage. Let primary be primary. And then allegorizing where you're finding a meaning or connection in the passage that's really not there in the passage. That's why finding there is in quotes, because you, you really aren't finding it, but you might be making it up. This ninth point here, you see some resources. I'll just briefly uh, refer to them. You've got some great resources from Trent and Ron and at the end of their sections. I only have uh, four different books to, to recommend one is the Gospel Transformation Bible. We have it out there. If the ESV Study Bible tells you how to interpret a passage or what a tough verse means um, and teaches you doctrine, this Gospel Transformation Bible instead um, relates a passage to the Gospel, which is especially useful when you're dealing with the Old Testament. And it also... Um, shows you how to apply it to Christian living. And I find mostly in a, a legitimate way. So if you, if you feel like I'm confused, I feel like I have no idea how to apply the Bible anymore. I feel like I've, I probably have done everything wrong and I don't even know what's right. Well, this might be a great thing for you. Uh, this is a good resource for seeing uh, maybe what is there in the passage and, and not just what you thought you saw. And then three books that are in a series together. There's the How to Read the Bible Book by Book, which gives you about eight pages per, per Bible book on what that book's about, um, how it's structured and how to understand it. Then there's How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. This is more like genre stuff that Ron was talking about today. It goes through kinds of literature in the Bible. And then there's How to Read the Bible Through the Jesus Lens how each book relates to Jesus and the gospel and salvation, what Trent was teaching us earlier. All right, now we've got 19 minutes according to this clock here, and we're going to do some test cases in Joshua. Remember that, that chart we began with, getting all the way around the block? That's going to be up here in the center screen just for reference. So you can keep it in mind as we look through some specific texts. I've got six passages, at least in my notes, that we're going to try to look at. We'll look at as many as we can, depending on how long it takes. Here's the first one. So turn there in your Bibles, if you would, or if you can see this. I don't know if anyone can see this. 
I had to make it in one slide, so there, there it is. Uh, if you can see that, great. If you can't, then turn in your Bibles to Joshua 1. And we won't read Joshua 1 again. We've already read it twice. But let's just focus on those first nine verses. You've already read at least those nine verses twice now. Remember the themes there? I'm giving you the land. That's in verse 2. I have given it to you. That's in verse 3. What would be a bad way of applying that today? Go ahead. Here's where we're interactive. What about the person who does fill in the blank? They hear the Lord say, I have given to you a new business. Go do it. Yes. He gave them the land. He said, go do it. The Lord gives it. I feel like he's telling me he's given it. He's given, he's given me her. He's given me her. <laughs> I should be bold and courageous when I ask her out. He has given it to me. What are some ways in which we should instead think about how we apply this thing of God giving the land to Joshua and the Israelites in that time, in that place, in that way? How does that relate to me living tomorrow or Monday? I'm asking you, what do you think? Right. And the emphasis must be on his promises, not what I hope, not what I think he's promised, but what his word says about his promises. You know, land. Where does the Bible talk about land again, at least in its final form? Well, one day there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, right? The land will be everything. The, the land promises have their finalist, can I say that word? Most final fulfillment in a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. So I've given it to you. I have given it to you, right? That's one way in which we would read that and make a proper application, understanding them and then and their land and those promises, going through Jesus and the new covenant, and eventually not just a, a new covenant, but, a, but also a, a final consummation, a new heaven and a new earth. So what about this phrase in verse 6? Be strong and courageous for you shall. What's the fill in the blank after that that people might want to insert today? Be strong and courageous for you shall. I recently started subscribing to Joel Olstein's Twitter feed. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. I mean, I don't even know what to say. It's so absurd. I mean, if, you're, if you subscribe in, in all honesty, then I'd love to chat with you afterwards. I'd love to quote some back to you afterwards and help you see how bad that stuff is. It is really dangerous. So Joel Olstein would be fine in talking about, be strong and courageous for you shall conquer that mountain tomorrow. Well, what if my mountain is Mount Everest? Like, I have that as a goal, but I'm still this out of shape and still this lazy. I'm not going to conquer Mount Everest tomorrow, so I shouldn't be strong and courageous. 
I should be honest, right? You see, we should be careful that be strong and courageous is not merely motivational speech for whatever the heck you want. Be strong and courageous in that context had God going before them to give the land that he promised. And boy, you, you can't be strong and courageous about whatever the heck you want. Um, it's just naive. And it's twisting God's word. It says here, verse 7, Be careful to do all of the law that you may have good success. Or in verse 8, be careful to do it, then you will make your way prosperous. Well, Joel Olstein would love these kind of sayings, and success would mean something far different for him than the conquest of Joshua, right? Success means um, upper middle income, suburbia, smiling a lot, blinking even more, and... <laughs> You know, moving from good to great, no trouble, and whatever bad is going on right now, it will pass tomorrow. That's what success and prosperous means for, for Joel Olstein, but that's not what the Bible talks about. And so we'd have to be careful about that. We'd also have to be careful about a, a contingency here where it says, be careful to do all the law that you might have good success. If you're reading the Bible and meditating on the Bible and obeying the Bible merely to have monetary success, well, I pray God doesn't give it to you. You don't want that. And that's not what these verses are telling you. That's not what Psalm 1 is talking about. It's prospering in spiritual ways, which may include poverty. Don't be frightened or dismayed. Verse 9, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, here's an interesting one. Is that true for us Christians today? The Lord is with you wherever you go. Come on, you, you're afraid, I know. <laughs> I can't say yes because he's going to tell me no. No, of course, it's right. He is with us wherever we go. But what did that mean in Joshua's time and what's it mean now? Don't, don't take a shortcut. You'll cheat yourself out of a great thing if you take the shortcut. If you simply take this as floating promise that's as applicable to Adam and Eve as Joshua, as you today, you've missed the nuances that are different about, well, for instance, the new covenant era. This didn't mean the indwelling Holy Spirit like Acts 2 was talking about. This didn't mean I will be in you as a temple through my spirit like 1 Corinthians 6 was talking about. Oh no, the Lord is with you and will be with you wherever you go, in a sense, far more and far better than it was with Joshua. The times have changed. We're in a different covenant era. So when we read, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, we shouldn't think that that's so for us just because it says it in Joshua 1. The Lord was with them for this thing of entering the land, but God's presence with his people didn't stop there, right? It wasn't simply about Jerusalem. It was eventually about him dwelling with us and in us and eventually us dwelling with him and in him. All right, another passage faster this time. 
Joshua 3, look at this one. We didn't look at this passage yet. Trent referred to it. But here we have in Joshua 3, verses 13 to 17, crossing the Jordan. And verse 13 says, When the soles of the feet of the priests that are bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that means they step out into water that is there, then the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. We can just read that one verse. Now this one is, uh, this preaches well, doesn't it? I googled this week uh, sermons on Joshua 3, and you find stuff like claiming your Canaan. What's your Canaan? Claiming your Canaan, or how to get past your Jordan. We all have our own personal Jordans in life, and just like we all have our own personal El Wapos, and I love that Three Amigos line. So someone could say, preaching this passage or applying this passage, just like the priest had to step into the water, believing that God would then part the waters, so you too need to step out in faith. You've been wondering about whether you should get that business loan? Do it. Believe that he will part the waters for you. He may, he may not. That's not what this passage is about, is it? It's not about that. So then how does it apply to us? And here, again, I invite you. What do you think? How do we apply Joshua 3? How do we apply God parting the Red Sea to 21st century American Christian living? Why was he parting the Red Sea? What was on the other side? Yeah, Canaan, the promised land, right? He's making a way, right? Without threat. I mean, here you can think of the cross. He's made a way to enter into his presence. What, what was the land of Canaan? A land flowing with milk and honey, yes, but that's not necessarily a good thing if God isn't there. It's a place of his presence, right? That was the whole point of moving into the land and the whole point of the tabernacle and later the temple. It was his presence, his presence. So we can think of it in terms of that. God has made a way. He's parted the way. That's Christ. Well, we could talk more about that, but I'll, I'll skip and go to this next one, Joshua 6, the destruction of Jericho. Here, again, Trent referred to this. God commands the people to march around Jericho seven times and then blow the trumpets and shout, and they do, and the walls come a-tumbling down, as the song says. It's great. Again, this isn't a passage in which we should um, be encouraged to march around things seven times so we can knock them down. A bully at school? March around him seven times. Get your trumpet, blow it, shout, and he will come a-tumbling down. No, that's not what this is saying at all. Again, think in terms of Jericho being much a bigger thing than just your own personal Jericho that needs conquering. Jericho was the citadel at the edge of the promised land. It was the roadblock. It was the main roadblock by which they needed to have removed in order to get into the land. And it was a, a menacing threat. And God defeated that 
roadblock in a seemingly silly sort of way. It didn't look victorious, did it? It didn't look like that would work. It wasn't according to human wisdom. No military commander says, ah, I got it. We march around seven times and blow our trumpets and yell and then wait. No, no no one would come up with that plan. And no one would come up with a plan of saving a people for himself through the cross, through, through a murder, through a payment being made, right? And like these other ones, it, it cheapens the story of Joshua 6 to simply talk about Jericho being any obstacle in our lives that the Lord can knock down. He can knock down any obstacle in your life. I just don't know that he will. I just don't know that he will. And no, ma- no amount of marching will, will, will require his hand to do it. Don't apply it that way. Instead, think in terms of what he has promised. He knocks down Jerichos like, like Satan and sin. He will knock down the Jericho of this fallen world and the curse and usher in a new heaven and a new earth one day. Right now, we are kind of like those who are in this Christian life. We're simply walking around in circles. If if the Christian life ever feels to you like you're simply walking around in circles and waiting, find encouragement in Jericho, man. I mean, people, God's people walk. They wander at times. Sometimes it's seven times around. Sometimes it's 40 years in the wilderness. But he will have his way. He will bring his promises to fulfillment. Joshua reminds us of that. Well, let's skip ahead. I had Joshua 7, the sin of Achan, as an option. I had a big one here with Joshua 11 to 22. We'll skip that one. Let's go lastly here to Joshua 24. The end of the book. Joshua 24. Choose this day whom you will serve, Joshua says. He says to the people at the very end of the book, are you going to choose the gods of your fathers or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell? And then he says these famous words, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then the people say, oh, we're not going to forsake the Lord. We would never do that. But then verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And then they say, no, 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 no. Verse 21, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua says, well, we'll see. Guilt is on your head if not. And they say, okay, okay. What's the point? Well, one question to ask here is whether Joshua is a good leader in this context. Remember, even anointed ones, messiahs with a small m, they're not perfect always. This famous verse 15, this oft-quoted verse 15, in light of verse 19, maybe... Well, maybe it, maybe it shouldn't be quoted so much. Do you see how pessimistic this is? He says, choose this day whom you will serve. That's fine. And here's the options he lays out for them. 
whether it's going to be the idols of your forefathers or whether it's going to be the idols of the people in your neighborhood. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You won't. You won't. I will. Is his pessimism right? He says later on, you are not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. His pessimism is right. If you notice uh, in verse 23 here, after they say twice, no, 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 we will serve the Lord. He said, well, then put away the foreign gods that are among you. His pessimism was right here, apparently, because they still had idols. His pessimism was wrong, however, if you go to verse 31, which isn't here on the screen. But in verse 31, it says, after Joshua died, they served the Lord for the next several generations faithfully. They put away the idols. But then Joshua's pessimism is rightly founded, if you think of it in terms of the rest of the Old Testament. What comes after Joshua? Judges. Faithfulness? No. First Samuel begins after Judges. Is it a, an era of faithfulness? No. Wicked priests. No one hears from the Lord. And the, the enemies are back, by the way. The enemies are back. In Joshua, you get, the enemies are gone, and we have rest on every side. Well, we know what happens after that, that there's, there's still enemies. The point is this. Here in Joshua, there are covenant conditions, and we live in a different covenant now. We live in a different covenant now. These covenant conditions... Be faithful or the Lord will be against you. Um, they had seasons of happiness and fulfillment and other seasons of sadness and failure. And that's why the words of Jeremiah 31, which Hebrews 8 quotes, are so precious to us. Because this isn't us. This right here isn't us. This is us. Listen. Christ has obtained a ministry that is of much more excellence than the old covenant. He mediates a better one, and it's enacted on better promises. Back in Jeremiah 31, God said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. They did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them at times, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. This is the covenant that we live in. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer will a, a one in this covenant have to say to his brother, hey, know the Lord. Come on, man, be with me in this. For everyone in this covenant will know the Lord. They shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. It's easy to read Joshua 24 and simply see it as resolve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and sort of just scratch our heads at verse 19. You're not able to serve the Lord. But the, but the Bible goes on from here, doesn't it? And the Bible gives us better promises 
It gives us more than just moral resolve. However powerful of a resolve it is that Joshua words for us here. So yeah, yeah, if you have a plaque in your house that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, don't take it down. Uh, Just think that you have a different kind of resolve based on new covenant promises that Joshua didn't have access to back then. You have certainties now that Joshua and his people did not have back then. And praise God for it. And yet we wait. Yet the battle is not done, right? Yet there are promises still to come and still to be fulfilled. And so we press on, we persevere. And we encounter this Jesus. Let me just read one more brief passage, which Trent, I think, quoted or at least alluded to. This is the Jesus that we read of and whose word we we read the word we read, the one we see in it. Back in Joshua 5, it's when Joshua was there in Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him. This is Jesus before he was Jesus, before he was in the flesh. And Joshua went to him, not knowing it's Jesus. And he says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And, and the second person of the Trinity said, No. (laughs) He gave him an either or, and Jesus said no. You get that? I love it. Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. I'm from heaven, is what he said. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now we can say, why did he say no? He was for them, right? Yeah, but he won't be anyone's tribal God, will he? He's bigger than that. He's not Israel's God. He's the God of the army of the angels of heaven. He is the Lord of hosts. And so Joshua did what any sane person would do before this one. He fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. He says, what does my Lord say? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua just what he said to Moses at the burning bush, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. So Jesus did so. That's the Jesus we encounter in the pages of Scripture. Let's fall on our faces often. Let's worship and say, what will you have me to do? And hear him say, Not just take off your shoes, but know that holiness is all around you. Holiness is a gift for me. Holiness is what I call you to and what I will fulfill in you one day. All right, let's pray. Oh, Father, we stand in awe of your word and the Jesus that's in it, the Christ of it. We thank you for your grand plan. We thank you for showing us your ways so powerfully, so, well, so distinctly, and yet so diversely. Help us to understand your word. Help us to long for it. Help us to, Lord, help us to see it, to do it, and to encourage each other with it. Help us for your namesake. Help us to trust you while we wait for your promises still to come. Give us faith and perseverance, endurance and joy and trust 
and obedience because Jesus died in our place and rose victoriously in the third day and is coming back again to bring all things to their zenith in your great plan. We thank you for this. We pray in his name, amen.